Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Stop putting a time limit on your habits because habits are for life, not just for January. You know, it's not like we just brush our teeth in January and then our dental hygiene is done for the year. You know, if we're no longer yeah. doing it. Mm -hmm. It's no longer a habit. And so we need to think about our habits long term. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Happy New Year. And continuing with our theme this month, we are talking all about behavioral change. And my next guest, I think you are going to get so much out of. I interviewed Dr. Heather McKee, and she is a health behavioral change specialist. So Heather grew up in Ireland, went to Dublin City University, where she studied sports science and health, which was then followed by a master's in physical activity and health psychology. And from there, she went on to the University of Birmingham, where she completed a PhD in weight loss behavioral change psychology. Maybe a goal that some of you might have right now. And so I wanted to speak to Heather because she's very uh, well known in terms of her science and application, what it takes to create a long lasting habit. And in our conversation, goodness, I could have spoken to her for much longer than the time that we had allotted, but we spoke about motivation, why we critically and chronically truly underestimate our motivation at a future date when we are setting goals. We discount things like uh, stress and lack of sleep and having to get to ki the kids out to soccer. That's totally mine. <laughs> uh, and so we talk about how we can overcome or circumvent motivation when it is not as high as maybe when you initially set the goal. We talked about how it is really not the winning ticket for long-term change. We talked about this idea. I, I like her phrasing here where she says, it's not willpower that uh, helps us achieve our goals. It's skill power. So we talk about ability. We talk about skill acquisition, um, why things need to be small 
and simple in order to be the driver for behavioral change. Um, And then we talk about some of the sort of environmental audits that we might consider, uh, cues, let's say, that we might consider when thinking about long-term behavior. We know we were talking about prompts, uh, you know, for example, your microwave beeps and it tells you that the food is done or the oven beeps, tells you that the food is done, that cues up a certain behavior. Uh, So we talked about how we can set up our environment for positive behavioral change, which I thought was fabulous. We talked about the motivation wave. We talked about how actually this is, this was really interesting. And and this was towards the end of our conversation, but you'll hear her, if you make it all the way through, uh, you'll hear her say that this is actually the foundational principle of why she does what she does. And this is this idea that change happens when we feel good, that positive emotion is the thing that wires in the habit. Of course, from my background in neuroscience, this makes a lot of sense from the dopaminergic cascade, of course, which increases that likelihood of the habit being repeated. But she explains it um, in such a beautiful way, because, uh, you know, I think we often assume that, um, you know, we have to, it's usually that negative emotion that has to be the catalyst, right? It's like, I stepped on the scale and I was at the lowest point in my life or some, you know, something like that. Or, you know, I have to set myself up for public ridicule (laughs) or, you know, I have to be my own worst critic in order for this to get through. And she actually counters that with this idea of being that true lasting change and this initiation of joy is how we actually can change for the good. Overall, a fabulous dive into behavioral psychology. I think that she talks, she gives us a lot of actionable items. Um, she talks about desire lists and temptation lists and how we can really figure out like when we do fall off the bandwagon, which is a hundred percent guaranteed. What were some of the circumstances, environmental, physical, intrinsic, extrinsic? What were some of the things that happened that led to that failure? And then most importantly, what our response can be. So we can either punch ourselves, you know, that, you know, hypothetical punching ourselves in the chin, or we can dust it off, get back up and keep going. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation with her. I think that there's probably uh, enough information, like enough uh, conversation material to have her back on. So let me know what you think. Uh, Would love to hear uh, in the comment section, if you're rating us on iTunes or Apple, would love to hear how this resonated with you and how this might change your approach to some of the goals that you might be setting in your own life. That might be learning a new language. And if so, come be a friend with me on Duolingo lingo, side note, (laughs) it might be weight loss. It might be, you know, any, anything that you have set out, um, to do, I wonder, and I'm curious about how this conversation is going to impact you. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Heather McKee. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, 
orate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Heather McKee, I am so thrilled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So we are going to be talking all about behavioral habits, formation, how to stick to them over the long term, and maybe some misconceptions and myths around what it takes to actually create habits that stick um, mm. and that can serve us. And we're going to, we were talking in the pre-chat about some of the topics that I wanted to um, to cover with you, but just by way of background, um, you know, if, if someone were to, let's say, look you up, uh, you are uh, a health behavioral change specialist. So how does mm. one fall into that line of work? Like, how did you, uh, how did you become interested in habits, habit formation, behavioral change? Um and I'll, I'll just add in my two cents here as you're thinking about how to answer that question. One of the things I found the most difficult, if, if the most difficult is to change myself, right? So like understanding my own, uh, you know, uh, where I fall short, um, certainly have given up on the idea of trying to change others because I know how hard it is to change myself. Uh, but maybe you can start off by, you know, what is a health behavioral change specialist? What and how did you fall into that line of work? Amazing, amazing question. God, okay, where do I start? Um, so I definitely didn't fall into it. <laughs> I would say I walked in a very squiggly line to get there. <laughs> but um, 
I think so I, I actually my background is in um, sports science and health and um, I started out in that and back in the day when I started out and this will reveal my age fitness wasn't really a thing and well-being wasn't a thing it was kind of like sport or nothing um, and so I got quite into sports psychology at the time and um, you know health and well-being was emerging but it was more to do with chronic disease and, and that kind of focus and it wasn't until um, I started to work in a metabolic syndrome clinic and in the clinic we had you know top nutritionists top trainers and everyone had the most flawless nutrition program and the most flawless training program and they couldn't make things stick. And I found that incredibly frustrating because I was like, I don't understand. Like you've got the best facilities, you've got all the incredible people. How is this not working? Um, and so I sat down with each individual person, 60 people in the clinic. And I, I talked to them and I asked them, what's getting in your way? What's holding you back? You know, why, why is it that you can't make these things stick? And I think that was really the spark that ignited the flame of wanting to know more about behavioral science. You could say I was nosy. <laughs> I just wanted to know why people couldn't make things work. Right. Um, but I was just, I was frustrated. I was frustrated that for what I've been taught so long, you know, all about nutrition, all about the benefits of well-being and exercise. And yet, that education alone, that information alone wasn't enough. And, and, and ultimately, I came to realize that it was about implementation, not information. And that's where the gap was. It was a knowledge action gap um, that I saw was happening with a lot of people. They had the intentions to make things happen. But when it came to action, that's where people fell down. And I wanted to know more about, well, how do we fill that gap? How do we understand and how do we learn more about that? Um, so I went on then to study. I, um, I did a PhD in the psychology of weight loss. So how to lose weight without dieting. Um, and what we did in that um work was that we looked at um two groups of people. One were in a a normal um, weight loss group who were like taught about exercise, they were taught about diet and the other ones were taught about psychological skills. Um, and this was really interesting. And this is one among a few studies. But what I found fascinating was that when we taught people just psychological skills, just behavior change techniques and tools, they did as well as diet and exercise, even though they weren't allowed to do any diet and exercise. Um, and they needed those skills. And I Ultimately, um, and I'll talk probably, I'll say this until um, everyone's blue in the face from hearing me today, <laughs> but um, I think ultimately we need to focus on skill power and not willpower. And that's where a lot of us go wrong. Um, but yeah, behavioral science wasn't really a thing, I think, when I started out. And now it's really interesting because I, I don't know if you feel the same way, Stephanie, but it seems to be, um, you know, uh, gaining momentum all the time now. And we're seeing a lot more behavioral scientists out there and and um, now it's a little bit more tricky because it's like what's paying lip service to behavioral science and a lot of people talk about behavioral change but actually they're not using evidence-based tools or techniques um, and so you have to be a little bit um, discerning when it comes to behavioral science but I just think you know the fact that people are aware of this and the fact that people are aware of actually well you know what I do need the skills um, to actually take these key concepts of being well and actually implement them in my life and I often say, um, you know, we can have all the perfect ingredients for change, just like they did in that clinic. And, you know, how many of us don't know that we need to eat more veg or that we need to eat more vegetables or that we need to floss? Or yeah, we all need of us to, know that. We yeah, all know that. Yeah. Eat more. Yeah. Um, and yet when it comes to implementing it, that's where we struggle. And that's where behavioral science comes in. And that's why I'm so passionate about it, because I think it can really, really, it's, it's the method in the recipe for health. It's how we take those ingredients and actually apply them to the rest of our lives. 
I love what you're saying because I think um, at least for me in, in clinical practice anyway, what I noticed was there, there was usually a difference. So I would, uh, you know, and, and maybe you can speak to some of the differences between men and women, but I would notice with my male patients, let's say they were coming to see me for back pain or, you know, some chiropractor by training. So they would come to see me for some type of maybe rehab or nutrition consult. And I would say to them, these are the things that you need to do. You need to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to reevaluate you in a month. And they would kind of go off and then come back and we reevaluate them. With women, I found that they needed a little bit more, and I don't mean this in, in a derogatory sense, but I a, a little bit more hand-holding. Like they needed a little bit more encouragement along the way. Like we needed to have more, pro- like I couldn't just be like, I'll see you in a month. Like they had to come in maybe you know, once a week or there was a telephone consultation, mm-hmm. maybe they were troubleshooting, they had questions, that kind of thing. And I, I really appreciate your, and I share that because I appreciate your, perspective on this because it's not enough. I don't think anymore. And even, you know, in the, you know, almost 20 years that I spent in private practice, it wasn't enough for me to say, go and do this. This is what you need to do. And then, you know, to just focus on the outcome goal, we needed to really focus on the tiny little behavioral uh, goals that we had set that lead into the outcome goal. Mm. And so I said this to you in the pre-chat, we're going to be airing this in January. Uh, this is usually the time where everybody's very excited about like new year, new you, here's my resolutions. These are the things I want to change for the year. And so I think that this is a really relevant conversation. I mean, whether it's January or April or September, like I think anytime you set a big goal for yourself, really being able to deconstruct, okay, what's the North star? So we have the outcome, maybe it's weight loss, maybe it's learning a new language, maybe it's any, any goal, any goal that you might think. But then we have to think about the behaviors that lead to the outcome because the outcome you can't necessarily control. You can't necessarily, like you, you may or may not lose the weight in the timeframe that you've set, but what you can control is the behaviors that contribute to that outcome goal. Would you agree with that? Disagree with that? Anything to say on that perspective or that, or that line of thinking? Yes. Where do I start? So much to say. No, it's so, yeah. What you said is really profound that, you know, it's so often when year comes around and we're like, right, that's it. This year, I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to lift weights in the gym. I'm going to give up sugar. I'm going to give up alcohol. I'm going to be nice to my other half. I'm going to be good with kids. I'm never going to lose my temper. I'm going to save. And, you know, the more goals we add in, the more we take away from our focal goal. And and there's two things there. Um, And the first I'll speak to is goal dilution. So, you know, we more we add in, the more we take away. And, and it makes it harder for us to ch- achieve that particular goal because we're trying to do too much at once. And why is that difficult? Because willpower is a limited resource. And so willpower can be depleted. And so willpower is a little bit like a muscle. So if we went to the gym for the next seven days and just trained our right bicep, by the time I get to the end of the week, I wouldn't be able to pick up a cup of tea. Right. <laughs> but, but if I went one of once a week for the next seven weeks, it's much more habit forming. Um, and, 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 and just like a muscle, you know, we need to have rest and recovery in order to get stronger over time. And that's exactly how willpower works. It gets depleted over time. And that's why it's really, really important, like you said, to actually focus on those small steps in the process rather than the outcome alone. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of research around this about small steps. And I'll, I'll actually come back to that because I want to speak to the second thing that you said about outcome goals. And this is another thing where people tend to go wrong. So we focus on 
the number. Say it's the number of miles on our fitness tracker or it's the number on the scales um, or the number on our paychecks or whatever it happens to be. And we think that that's the particular thing that we need to keep us motivated. But actually, that's only going to last for a short while. Those kind of goals only last about six six weeks. That they're snapshots in time. They're particular numbers. And if we focus on numbers alone, that often evokes extrinsic motivation. And extrinsic motivation is type of motivation I call slippy motivation because it's hard to grasp onto. And extrinsic motivation is things that you're doing it for performance, appearance, or number based reasons. That is. So something like that. Exactly. You're doing yeah. it for the social media likes. You're doing it for everyone in the office to say, well done. You're doing it because your doctor told you to do it. You're not doing it for you. And that's why they're slippy goals. They're hard to hold on to. And they only represent a snapshot in time as well. Um, you know, if we look at a gold medal winner, you know, if they're so focused just on that gold medal alone, often when they get there, there's this phenomenon in the Olympics called the gold medal blues, where people feel a bit lost afterwards. And, you know, then they try and step it up, step it up, step it up. We see with weight loss all the time, people get to their target weight and then they're like, okay, now I've got to push harder, now what? To go further. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But the opposite of that is intrinsic motivation and intrinsic goals. And those are goals that are, you're doing it for you. You're doing it because it's personally meaningful for you. You're doing it because it's important for you. And I call those sticky goals. Um, and intrinsic is a beautiful word because it translates in Latin into the word inward or goods for the soul. And that's essentially what it is. And before we start out on any health kick or before we try and develop any habit, we have to ask ourselves, why is this important for me and me alone? Because that's why a lot of people often fail with their goals because they're doing it for the wrong reasons and they're not doing it for themselves. And that can actually help people decipher, is this a goal that actually I want to follow? I truly want to follow or am I just doing this because everyone else is doing it? Right. And the way to, to really get to that, um, Stephanie, is to ask yourself, why is it important? And, and act like a two-year-old or a three-year-old here and say, keep asking yourself why. So, for example, if someone says, well, I need to get to 10,000 steps on my fitness tracker, why is that important? Oh, because I want to exercise more. Why is that important? Oh, well, because I want to have more energy. Why is that important? See, the annoying two or three-year-old. Um, and once you ask enough why, they might be like, well, actually, I, I need more energy to apply myself at work. Or I want to give back to my community. Or I want to be a role model for my children. Or I want to feel like I can give my be my full self each day. Or I want to have confidence. Or I want to have vitality. Um, and exercise enables and allows me to do that. That's an intrinsic goal. So if anyone wants to find out, you know, are their goals truly intrinsic? Ask yourself why. Ask yourself why enough times. Why is it important to me? And you can get to that true why. And that true why makes those goals so much more sticky. So when you're in the trenches, you're not like, oh, well, I'm just doing this because I'm trying to get 10K a day on my fitness tracker. You're doing it because of what it gives you back and who it allows you to be in your life. And those goals are much more sustainable than those when you focus on the outcome alone. This is so powerful. And I think such an important thing for um, my listeners to hear about, because one one of the things I think that is maybe a tragic flaw, potentially, of the human uh, race is that we just grossly underestimate what our motivation is going to be like in the future when you are setting a goal that is very big. So that might be, you know, exercising four or five times a week. It might be the number on the scale or the number on the paycheck or any of the examples that, that you gave. 
Um, and I think I really like the distinction or the delineation between the extrinsic and the intrinsic because we we often without without uh, um, evaluation will say, well, you know, it's like this keeping up with the Joneses kind of idea where we're like, well, so and so is doing it, so therefore I should I should want to do this. They're doing an ice bucket challenge. I should do an ice bucket challenge. They're posting Don't do an ice bucket challenge. It's yeah, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> just give money. Yeah, just just <laughs> donate if it's really if ALS is a really important cause for you, then just donate. You know, just donate the money. Uh, at the time of this recording, right now, what we're seeing, at least, I'm what I'm observing on social media is everybody's posting these sort of AI uh, generated images of themselves, and it's like, all right, are we doing this because of is this egoically driven? Like, why is everybody doing this on social? And by the time this is by the time this this episode airs, people will be like, what is she talking about? But if you are right now on Instagram, everyone has AI photos of themselves. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit like just double click a little bit on motivation, because one of the things I have noticed, uh, you know, women, it doesn't matter. It's like sex agnostic. It is an unreliable lever when we are thinking about behavioral change. Mm. You can you can have, let's say, big spikes of motivation for doing like really, really hard time things like one time. Like if your child is stuck under a car, you're probably going to find the motivation to try and free that child. Or uh, you might find the motivation one time or maybe two times to move homes or, um, you know, you know, as you said, you know, that behavior, like you have 50 new New Year's resolutions, you can keep all 50 of them for like one day, you know, but keeping them for the whole year, maybe not so much. And so I think what we do is when we get excited about setting a goal, we're like, oh, it's going to be great. And I'm going to like go to the gym and it's going to be like four times a week, five times a week. And then I'm going to do cardio on top of that. And I'm going to measure all my foods. And then, you know, so you do that for a week and then you're just miserable. Right. And of course, the inevitable happens, your motivation starts to wane. And so does your application. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, how we can move away from motivation. Like motivation is great to start it, but then we need something to continue it. Like you can start on January 1st and say, this is going to be the year. And by golly, like let's make it the year for you. But maybe we start instead of these gargantuan, like I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to compete in the CrossFit games, I'm going to learn four languages, you know, how can we how can we move from motivation maybe to or maybe maybe the better question is how can we overcome um motivation uh resistance or when motivation is waning how do we overcome that to continue to pursue the goal yeah great that's just such a fantastic question and i think uh you alluded to it there um it's that we need to stop relying on motivation in the first place and even just admitting that to ourselves, you know, motivation. I and I, I often bracket up willpower in in the same in the yes. same bracket. Yes. Um. You know, they're limited, and and so exactly like you say, Stephanie. When we start out, motivations appear, and what what happens over time is it goes down, and we have to recognize that. We have to understand that motivation goes down over time, but there's this kind of crossover that happens where actually 
habit is really low at the start, you know, her habitual tendencies, how much we repeat things in a given context, that's really low. And what we want to do is we want to kind of get this crossover where we don't need the motivation anymore, where the habit starts happening. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how we do that in a second. But what's quite interesting, and I think a way for people to really get their head around it is, think about this morning. Think about one of the first things you did after you got up. You know, often people, um, you know, will brush their teeth first thing in the morning, but it's not like you had to lay in bed, you know, weighing up the pros and cons of dental hygiene or deciding if you're in the toothbrushing kind of zone or you had to go look in the mirror and say, I'm the toothbrushing type of person or read seven habits of highly effective toothbrushers. You know, you did it because it's a habit that you had. It's an automatic, context-dependent, non-conscious process. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about habits is we don't have to use any motivation to create them. They're automatic. Now, we, they require a little bit of motivation at the start um, to actually kick and start them and ignite them and put those environmental processes in place to actually will support them. But once you kind of get to that habit overlap, you don't need the motivation anymore. And actually the habit takes over. But where people fall down is how long they think that takes. And often, you know, you, you, you probably have heard, you know, people talk about it takes 21 days to form a habit or 28 days to form a habit. And unfortunately, it takes a lot longer than, than that. And actually, a lot of I've heard people from- actually completely dispute that. So I've had a couple of people mm. say it's not 21. It's like 63. And then I've had people, other people on the, on the show who've said it's actually not 63. It, it's, it's actually nothing. Like, so you're talking about this like crossover between motivation mm. coming down and habit formation. And then I've had other people challenge this idea that if there's no prompt or there's no ability or skill set, you know, mm. kind of what you're talking about, like you don't have to look in the mirror and be like, you're a toothbrushing kind of person. Yeah. You can do it. You know, like there's, there's, almost this competency or core set of because if you look at like a two-year-old let's say any mom knows that like your toddler it's like a hit or miss whether or not they're going to brush their teeth you have to prompt them Mm. right you have to say all right honey it's time to like in the morning we go to the bathroom we do potty and then we and then we brush our teeth and then we you know whatever and that takes several years of conditioning as you were saying, right, motivation, you know, and maybe the toddler isn't even motivated to brush their teeth. They don't actually Mm. understand the utility of it. But their habit, as you were, you know, their their habit, there's that intersection where the habit and the acquisition of skill gets better over time so that we can move it into automation as well. So I don't know Mm. what your thoughts are in terms of how long it takes. Mm. I'm actually confused on this. I don't know if it's 21 days, 63 or four days, or it's just you need to have some sort of you have to set up your environment for prompts to make yeah. to like, like if your toothbrush is like charged, you know, if you have like an electric toothbrush or something and it's like right there waiting for you, like, Oh yeah, toothbrush. Yeah. To, you know, well, the, so let's, let's think about the habit myth um, for, for a minute and the 21 days myth. And so that actually comes from research from the sixties. I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a surgeon called Ma- Maxwell Maltz and he wrote this book called psycho cybernetics. And it was about his, plastic surgery patients and what they found on average was it took them 21 days to adapt to their new appearance and somehow that got taken up in the media um, and it was taught that that's how long it took for people to adapt to new behaviors there's also an equally wacky study that was supposedly on nasa scientists where they were testing uh, spatial disorientation and they put goggles on the NASA scientists that flipped their vision 180 degrees and they got them to live as long as possible with their vision upside down, which obviously there was a huge attrition rate 
in that study um but those that kept it uh going so their vision was completely flipped upside down supposedly after 28 days their vision flipped the right way up and therefore you know if spatial disorientation can happen in in nasa scientists for some reason that got taken up was that's how long it takes for human behavior to change that's again a very a complete, odd extraction that's a very, yeah that's a very that's like reach there's yeah like, yeah that's absolutely a big reach. and yeah. i think the thing is that you know the media you know, says these things like 21, 28, because it makes habit change feel more accessible. And, right. you know, there's nothing I want more than a habit change to be accessible. But I also want people to know the truth. And the truth is that habits take a long time to form. Like you just said, you know, a two-year-old reminding them to brush their teeth, you know, how many countless times are you going to have to do that over the years? And then when they become a teenager, it starts all over again. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that there is research from um, University College London on this, and they found that it took anything between 18 and 254 days to create a habit. Um, and they, they define a habit as the time that it took to get to automaticity so automaticity is you're doing it without thinking so you get into the car you put on your seatbelt you don't even think about it it's just automatic you wake up in the morning you take out your phone you check your social media you're not even thinking about it it's just automatic um and they kind of came around this number of 66 or two months but that completely was dependent on how complex the habit was and this goes back to what you were saying stephanie you know like those simpler habits those smaller habits um, or smaller changes, they become habitual more easily. So, you know, drinking that extra glass of water is much more easy to adopt over time than a more complex habit like going to the gym. And that's why it's so, so important when it comes to habit change that we scale back, that we look at those tiny, 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 small changes. But just to put a wrap around that, you know, whether it takes 22 or 122 days, it doesn't matter, you know, as long as it's you're forming a habit because if you're no longer doing it it's no longer a habit either and so the key is like once a habit is formed they tend to last you know we don't have to think about them they don't use our willpower they don't use our motivation and so we need to stop putting time limits on ourselves when it comes to habits and actually look at them like experimentation in the first in the first while looking at well where does this fit in the context of my life how can i find those cues that actually will make me repeat this more often so for example toothbrushing in the morning the context the cue is you wake up you go into the bathroom you see your fully charged toothbrush there it reminds you that that's a cue you've been repeating this behavior time and time again in this exact similar context if you go to many other places around the world it's going to be the first thing that you think about when you get up in the morning because you've repeated it often enough that it's become a habit so how do we create that with our other habits we want to make them as simple and as easy to do and i like to say you want to be able to almost trip over your habits that they're so simple um and that's where environmental cues and other factors come in but i think just to lay this kind of myth to rest for people i would say stop putting a time limit on your habits because habits are for life not just for january you know it's not like we just brush our teeth in january and then our dental hygiene is done for the year you know if we're no longer yeah. doing it mm -hmm. it's no longer a habit and so we need to think about our habits long term let's stop thinking about four days 40 days four months let's start thinking about four years 40 years you know what do we want this to look like in four years five years six years time and i think that's a much more safe approach and it's a much more compassionate approach to creating long-term change 
as you were talking, I had this image of a of a meme. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. But it's you know the the person's like, I had one salad this week, and I still I don't have abs yet, so I give up. You know, <laughs> it's like I had I did it good one time, and I'm not getting the results. Like why not? I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Um, you said something that I wanted to, um, just highlight for a moment. And that was when we bring the, when we bring the goal post or when we bring the the habit down to like the small, mm. the minuscule, I think a lot of people struggle with that partially because uh, I think there's messaging, let's say in our culture that is around like go big or go home. You know, if it's not, if there's not a, you know, if there's not any big goal that you're striving for, like it's not worth doing. And I would say just as someone who uh, tends to be an overachiever, like you'll never find anyone harder on myself than me, right? Like I'm always going to be the person who pushes myself the furthest and I will set the goals for myself. I too struggle with setting smaller habits because it almost for like an all or nothing type of personality, which I certainly have those characteristics. Like if I have the option between all or nothing and I know I can't have it all, I choose mm-hmm. nothing. I'm like, well, if I can't, if I can't work out 400 hours a week, you know, or, you know, whatever it is, right. If I can't learn yeah. two languages at the same time, then why even bother learning one? You yeah. know, that's, that's, it's kind of this like fatalistic, nihilistic, like, well, just screw everything then. And, you know, I'm not going to do it. So how do you, what do you say to, uh, and I hope that I'm not the only one like on this podcast, like hopefully some of the listeners are like, yeah, I can get what she's saying there. Like, it's not yeah. just pat- like, I'm just not the path, like the pathology here, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> can we, what would you say to someone who skews into that very, um, I call it more of a type A personality, but mm. I would almost say there's like some rigidity to the personality, like trying to control, and I, you know, we can unpack why that is and trauma responses and all the things, but for someone, for someone who tends to like to control their environment, mm. um, how do you counsel someone to say, okay, like it's okay to, it's okay to set a smaller goal. Like that doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean that you have some sort of core incompetency. How do we get around that um, maybe egoic resistance? Yeah. And a great question. And it's something a lot of people struggle with. So you're not, you're not, you're not alone in that, you know, and as you just, as you just alluded to, you know, we might eat well all week. And then on Thursday we go into the office and there's a birthday cake and we're like, oh, well, I've had this now. Um, I might as well just eat what I want for the weekend. And then I'll start again on Monday or, you know, the first of the month or after this holiday or whatever it is. Um, so there's two things on that. 
And I'll, I'll come back to um, the small, small changes um, and actually what we can derive from sports psychology and, and what we've learned from that around that. But to speak directly um, to the fact that this all or nothing behavior and I actually just did a, a workshop on this um, with the company um, about how to find balance this festive season. And they're a real... Um, uh, they're a lifestyle behavior um, company and they've got well-being apps and everything. So they're super, you know, um, high chargers and really like dedicated and motivated and everything else. Um, but they say that every year Christmas comes around the holiday season and their habits go out the window. And and we talked about actually, you know, for people that tend to be quite all or nothing, um, the thing is that habits need to be scaled. So, you know, Let's let's look at like what's a 10 out of 10 for you. So Stephanie, 10 out of 10 for you from a fitness point of view might be, you know, three hit sessions and two runs a week. Well, what's a nine? And what's an eight? And what's a five? And we scale all the way back to a one. You know, one might be, okay, I just get in three walks this week. Um, and what's quite interesting about that is that actually you're still able to serve your value of being healthy but it just doesn't have to be a 10 out of 10 all the time. A lot of people struggled. A lot of people struggled to find their nines, their eights and their sevens. And they had to experiment a little bit. But it's really, really important because actually what the new emerging research in habit science shows that actually flexible habits are much more sustainable. So actually, it's not always about doing the same thing at 10 p.m. Every, or 10 a.m. every single day. It's actually that you can do it in a circumstance that feels intuitive. You can do it in whether you're on holidays, whether you're abroad, whether you're working, whether, you know, you can start to understand and see the benefits that you get out of this habit, regardless of the circumstance. So it's not like, oh, well, if I can't do it at 10 a.m. on a Thursday, then I'm not doing it at all. It's like, well, how can this, what does this look like in different contexts? And one of the best ways to introduce yourself to that is to look at your habits on a scale. And so maybe it's a meditation habit or maybe it's a nutrition habit. You know, if 10 out of 10 for you is, you know, having five extra vegetables each week, what's a four? What's a three? Maybe it's just having one. Maybe it's having a healthy breakfast. And this is really important because we believe, and this goes back to what you said, Stephanie, so insightfully about the motivation curve. We believe that our future self is never going to be subject to stress. They're never going to be fatigued. They're never going to be depleted. They're never going to be angry at their kids or having to deal with a, you know, a nasty boss or anything like that. They're all things that deplete our willpower and we will all suffer from willpower depletion at some stage. And so we need to look at, well, what can we do in circumstances that are less than perfect? And what they call this in psychology is implementation intentions. And so what that is, is you're creating a plan for when things go off track. And let me tell you now, everything will go off track at one time or another. And it's a beautiful test of your habit strength, of your habit resilience. And so the thing is, you have to have a plan for when you cannot be perfect. And that's where a lot of people fall down because they think, well, it's got to be the three hit sessions and the two runs a week or it's nothing at all. But actually what we need to look at is how can we scale our habits on that scale of one to 10? And how can we experiment with doing it differently at different times of our life? Because our lives will ebb and flow. But if we can consistently show up in different ways, we're much more likely actually to sustain that habit. And it actually, from a neurological point of view, helps our brain stop thinking in such a black and white way. It stops our brain from thinking it's got to be all or nothing. 
Because every time you do a new possibility, every time you do a seven on your scale or a six or a three, you tell your brain, oh, there's something else I can do in this circumstance. So say you go to go out for a run and it's lashing rain or, you know, the weather is really cold or it's really icy. And you say, well, that's it. I can't go for a run. That tells your brain, okay, well, it's either good weather or nothing. Whereas actually when you start to do, if you do like a an online strength training for runners session at that time instead, you know, it tells your brain there's another option. And it helps you actually look at, well, how can I still serve this habit in different ways? I love that so much because as you were, you know, I used to be very much like that. It's like if I didn't work out and it wasn't completed by 7.30 or 8 in the morning, then the whole day was a wash. Like that's mm-hmm. how I used to approach you know, fitness and and what have you. And then of course, kids come along and, you know, I had, you know, a child with me this morning, kind of a little feeling a little sick and like needed some extra cuddles this morning. So the time where I, that I had dedicated this morning, for example, for my training didn't get done. And so what I'm doing is after we finish our recording together is I'm slipping in my workout that was supposed, and it's not the end of the world. And I, mm. I, I can really, um, I, I never, I was not like that for many years it was like you're doing this and it was very kind of very sergeant drill sergeant in my mind like couldn't you can't you can't act like this or or else um and i do feel like there's been a bit of a softening that might be with age that might be you know being a mother and sort of understanding that you know we have to have a lot of patience with even our children to help facilitate their own habit formation and maybe that's integrated somehow into me but i i i'd love um what you're saying and I wanted to maybe just um, stay on motivation just for one more moment because mm. you you mentioned a scenario uh, where you know you've been good all week and then you go into the office on Thursday and there's a birthday cake. So these are like kind of competing motivations, right? It's like on the one hand, it's like I want to reduce the sugars in my diet or I'm on a certain I'm eating a whole foods uh, diet. Maybe that's one sort of motivation. And then the competing motivation is like, man, I really want that chocolate cake. Right? <laughs> uh, so how do we how do we navigate, you know, these conflicts um, uh, or I'll say competing motivations? And how do we allow, let's say the one that we want to prevail, which hopefully is the, you know, whole food diet. I'm trying to reduce my weight, let's say, or whatever it is. How do we, uh, how do we facilitate? Um, well, how, how do we now, na- the question is, how do we navigate those competing motivations with each other? Yeah. And I wish there was just one answer to that, um, which is do this, but um, unfortunately there isn't, but there are several different studies on things that could help. Um, so I'll, I'll speak to those. Um, and the very first thing is, and, and, and you talk a lot about this, Stephanie, but it's sleep. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, our willpower, our ability to resist temptation, our ability to regulate our hormones, all of that goes down to sleep. So we have much better self control in the moment, right. momentary self control when we've slept better. And so that is why sleep is just so important in so many ways. And, and, you know, I'm, we could talk for days on that, but that's one thing. So it's, and it's important to understand and know that when you're underslept or you're fatigued, you are more vulnerable, um, to giving into temptation and you're much more likely, um, to actually have, you know, those raised hormones that actually increase the appetite and make it more likely because you're seeking out energy. You're looking for energy in different places. And again, that goes back to other habits, which 
are things like rest and recovery and the importance of those habits. And I always say, you know, people talk about good and bad habits. I like to say helpful and unhelpful habits because actually every bad, so-called bad habit or unhelpful habit always has a root, always has a foundation. So if we're eating out of stress or we find ourselves giving into temptation a lot more, you know, there's always a reason behind that. And if we dig deep enough, we can truly find that reason. And then that's how we kind of unravel an unhelpful habit. But I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, so I want to answer your question. I don't want to skirt around it. But one of the other things then, what they found in studies is when people were presented, um, there's a researcher that's done a bit of interesting work on this. Um, she's at a Chicago Booth University. Um, her name's Isla Fishback. Um, and she actually had a, a book out recently, which I, um, will remember the name of, um, shortly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, she talks a lot about this motivation in the moment and when we're presented with temptation. Um, and what they did in this study was that when people had finished um, a workout in the gym or they were coming into the gym, they presented them with um, some healthy snacks and some unhealthy snacks. And um, they had two groups. They had a control group um, where they just said to them, um, you know, um, which, which snack would you prefer? Um, and then they had the experimental group, which they asked them to think about their intrinsic goal. So to think about why their health goal was important to them that day. And those that were reminded of their health goal, those that were reminded of their intrinsic goal, were much more likely to actually see that that temptation to have the unhealthy snacks was temporary and actually that their long term goal was more important. And that's why, you know, like, you know, Simon Sinek says, you know, start with why. And I like to emphasize, you know, it's important to have that sticky motivation, that intrinsic motivation, but it's also why it's important to keep it really salient and remind yourself of it. Um, and not in a way to punish yourself or beat yourself up, but ask yourself, is this choice in line with what I want to be, who I wish to represent in the world right now? Um, you know, is this in line with what I ultimately want to achieve for myself? And if you can answer that in a way that actually, yeah, that this is absolutely fine because I've developed the flexibility to bounce back on this. And I know that this isn't going to be one in a series of dominoes. And what they found in research is, and I, I say this so that people can have the flexibility again, like I can't emphasize this as a theme enough in resilient habit change is flexibility. That's okay to miss once. It's okay to forego your hab, your, you know, your healthy habits once, as long as you pick yourself back up again. And that's the thing. When it becomes one, two, three, four times in a row, that's when actually you know, the, the new habit we're trying to form actually returns to the older habits. And so it's really, really important that people understand it's okay, absolutely okay to miss once. It's just that repetitive missing that actually is quite dangerous to our long-term pursuit. Um, and there's another number of other things as well that can really support in resisting temptation in the moment. Um, there's a couple of supports you can put in place way before you even get in the position of temptation. And these are really important because um, studies have shown that those with the greatest self-control or those with the greatest self-regulation or willpower are actually those that use it the least. And what's really interesting from that point of view, and we talked about earlier about willpower depletion, that willpower gets degraded over time. You know, you have an argument with your boss, you have an argument with your spouse, you know, life happens, you've got a sick child, that all depletes your willpower over time and life happens. But if we can engineer our environment to make the healthier choice the easier choice, we're less likely to deplete our willpower. And what I mean by that is, you know, how can you, I, I like to say to people, do an environmental audit. 
So look around at your environment and ask yourself, how is this supportive or unsupportive of my healthy habits? So for example, if you're someone who's suffering with anxiety or um, struggling with focus at work, let's just say, but you've got a million screens open, you've got a million alerts, you've got your phone on the table, um, you know, your phone in itself is a micro environment. If you look at your homepage of your phone, look at those apps and notifications you receive first. Are they the ones that are most supportive of your long-term goals? Are the apps, you know, if you want to read more, is it a reading app that's coming up? Are you getting notifications about your meditations? Are you getting notifications about your workouts? Are you getting notifications about your, your stress management? If those things are important to you, like I said, with intrinsic goals, you want them to be salient as well. So take some time to audit your phone environment, audit your desktop environment, but then also audit your physical environment. Because where the eye line goes, the attention follows and the brain is cued depending on what's in the environment. So you can reverse engineer your environment to support your habits in a way that, you know, when you open the fridge first, instead of that kind of, you know, birthday cake that's left over from the weekend being the first thing that you see, maybe it's chopped up cherry, cherry tomatoes and chopped up, you know, carrots. Or, you know, if you're trying to drink more water, you know, having a giant um, thing of water to cue you into at arm's reach in front of you at your desk to cue you into engaging in the habit makes it so much easier. And if we're not having to look at temptations, it makes it easier to resist them. And the brain has to make 250 food choices alone a day. And so each time you have to make a choice, you're depleting yourself again and again and again. So if we can engineer our environment that there's less of those choices, it makes it easier to resist temptation. And then over time, as our intrinsic motivation grows and we learn more ways to navigate temptation, then it makes it easier in those circumstances, like when you go into work to realize, actually, you know what, this isn't, today isn't the day for this. Or actually, yeah, I'm going to have one because I know I can get back on track quite quickly afterwards. I think that these cues are really like the, you know, or doing an environmental audit, as you said, is really the invisible driver uh, of our lives, right? Even if you think of cues uh or you know prompts let's say you know your oven beeps when uh it's finished cooking and what do you do well that drives the behavior of you walking over to check on whatever you're you know whatever you're cooking you pull it out or you leave it in again and you set the timer same thing right when you go outside and it's raining you like that's a cue you're like oh i should get my umbrella out and I open my umbrella and I, and so there's all of these different, like in our everyday life, you know, you're driving, mm. you see a red light, that's a cue for you to press on the, uh, the brake, <laughs> mm-hmm. not on, not on the gas. Right. Yeah. So th- these are, these are all cues, right? Like these are all driving our behaviors. You said like, what's on the home screen, right? Is it, mm. do you want to meditate more? Is the, are you getting, you know, the notification? Like for me, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Duolingo aficionado. So I have, you know, Duolingo will prompt me if I haven't done my lesson, let's say for the mm. day, one of the characters would be like, Hey, you want to give up your, you know, however many day streak you have, like get on, get on the, get on the app. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I got to do my French today. So, um, I think that thinking about setting yourself up with these, like that environmental audit, I think Mm. is so important because it grabs our attention, right? Like the oven grabs our attention so that we don't burn the food, right? The Mm. green light prompts us to go so that the cars behind us, you know, don't hit us or, or whatever. So I think that this is where we kind of, you know, I was talking about how do we overcome motivation? I think that this is also, and I'd love your, 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 uh, thinking on this. This is how we maybe circumvent 
motivation. Like, as you said, if you open the door of the fridge and it's like all the celery is already chopped up, you've got salads ready to go. Uh, you know, the dressing is art like freshly made or your meats are marinated in whatever marinade. All you have to do is like pull it out, kind of throw it all together. And then it's, it's done, right? Like that's a way for you to overcome the motivation of like, okay, I got to make, like, I got to like marinate the chicken breast. Then I got to chop up the tomatoes and then I got to make the dressing. And then I got to do the thing. Like all of, all of that, like thinking about all of those things that you have to do, like the chicken, the cutting and the grilling, the, this and the, that, like all of that is as you said, like it's decision fatigue, it it chips away at your motivation. But if it's already kind of pre-done and you just have to grab it from the fridge, toss it together, maybe throw it on the skillet for a couple of minutes, you know, that's that environmental setup Mm. is how we can potentially circumvent or overcome the lack of motivation in that moment. Because there are plenty of times where I know that I have to get dinner on the, you know, on the table for my family. I often like I like to sort of putter around the kitchen on the weekends, but during the week, it's like, we got to do soccer. Like they got to get their homework done. It's like, then I got to drive them to soccer. And then I got, you know, I have all these different things that are vying for my attention. So I always meal prep. Like on Sunday, I take a lot of time to like cut up all the things. I do the shopping, cut up all the things. So it's all ready to go for me and for the kids so that when I, it's time to, I can put dinner together in about 20 to 30 minutes because all the stuff is kind of pre-done for me. And if it wasn't, you know, if I had, you know, if I had the resources to have a chef, I totally would. But in, until that point, until I have that, uh, until I have that asset, that's what's going to work for me right now is like mm-hmm. setting up my environment in a way that I know that when I'm in a pinch, when my motivation is really low, I'm stressed. I know we have like 45 minutes before I got to get in the car and take them to soccer that I can kind of whip something up for them in like 20, 25 minutes. Mm, and that like that skill power at its best. You know, you're not waiting to rely on your willpower. You're like, well, what skills have I got? What skills can I develop that yeah. are going to help me? And, and that's a, such a huge part of habit change. And I talked about implementation intentions earlier, but it's about knowing that we're vulnerable when we're stressed, knowing that we're vulnerable when we've got to get the kids out to soccer, knowing that these are the situations in which I go off track. And, you know, I think it's important for people to take uh, some time out when they're trying to think about habit change. And at the very, very get-go, ask themselves, what's going to get in the way of me being successful at this Mm -hmm. change? Mm -hmm. And if that happens, what options are available to me at this time and exactly like we talked about the scaling option is one way of doing it um or asking yourself you know so for a lot of people um stress might get in in the way so if you're asking yourself okay well if i normally meal prep for the week to overcome this what might get in the way of that and how can i overcome that and and how can my most depleted self and most exhausted self overcome that as well because again we need to think about our our future selves we all think about our future selves as these perfect beings yeah sunday morning when you have the whole day to lounge over a coffee and a croissant or something yeah yeah (laughs) like unflawed you know flawless people and Mm. we have all of this self-restraint and the willpower in the world but we're flawed and we have to accept that and accept that we will give in to temptation and so we need to approach it whenever we're creating a new change asking ourselves What's going to most likely to get in the way? And the thing is, you'll know that because it'll have happened time and time and time again in the past. And that's often the tipping point where people actually go off track. And it's so, it makes me really frustrated because actually that's the learning point. 
that actually is the inflection point. That's a really important time where actually, you know, failure is success if you learn from it, which was one of the conclusions of one of our studies of long-term maintainers. Those that were able to maintain their habits five years or more, maintain a clinically significant weight loss five years or more versus those that actually went off track after a year or two. Um, and what we found was that they were actually able to bounce back best from failures. And that's often because they were able to see their future selves and see the barriers and the blockages that get in the way. And they were able to actually pre-plan and actually set up an environment for success where they increased friction to unhelpful behaviors and they increased fuel to helpful behaviors. And what I mean by that is they made those helpful behaviors more obvious, more salient in their physical environment, in their social environment, in their emotional environment. And they made those unhelpful behaviors harder to do. And that's a huge piece when it comes to long-term behavior change. When we're talking about skill power, so for moving from, you know, to use your terminology, for moving from willpower to skill power, um, you know, in that example that I gave you where like I'm on soccer mom duty, like I have a time crunch there, right? So that's something that I've identified. So there's like a time restraint that I have in the evening from the time that the boys get home, they do their homework, and then we're kind of on the go taking them to soccer practice back and forth and so on. But I think that there, so I think it would be helpful, uh, or at least it's been helpful for me when I think about, okay, what are, where am I going to get stuck? Like it's going to be, a, I'm going to get stuck with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll get stuck. Uh, you know, I'll fall off my routine. So how can I get back on the routine? And we talked a little bit about that already with, um, you know, having that flexibility to say, okay, you don't get it done right in the morning, but, you know, maybe, maybe it gets done in the afternoon or, you know, or, you know, later in the evening or something like that. But I think that there's also a couple of other restraints, um, one of them is like mental uh, effort, right? So what is the, uh, does the, you know, the behavior that you're looking to adapt, does that use a lot of mental energy? Mm. Um, and then I would say from a weight loss and like body recomposition um, perspective, there's also like a physical effort, right? So do you have the physical ability to do the behavior that you're setting out to to yeah. do, right? Like, can mm. you actually work out four or five times a week without killing yourself? Um and then I guess the other, um, I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting, but I would also, I would also think like a money resource. Like I kind of mentioned, mm. like if I can, until I can afford, you know, the chef, like I gotta, I gotta do this thing myself. Um, what are some other, um, and maybe I've covered them. I, I know that there are things that I haven't, uh, so like financial time, physical, mental effort, mm. um, what are some other restraints that we might identify if any, um, and then what are some actionable items? Like for me, it's like, I know I have a time restra- restraint on like Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. Like I have to, the food has to be done and prepped on those days. So mm-hmm. what are what are some actionable items that we might think about in either of those categories, let's say, or uh, if, if there's any sort of restraints that I've that I've missed? Yeah, and I think what what you're alluding to, and I, I don't know if you're doing this intentionally or not, but um, either way, it's brilliant, um, is the COMB model of behavior change, which is about capability, opportunity, motivation. And then those are the three key factors that can influence then behavior, which is the B. Um, so capability being the C, opportunity being the O, and, and motivation being the M. Um, and what is that called? It's called the COMB? COMB model. And that's from University College London and Susan Mitchie. 
is the is the research around that. And it talks about how, you know, we need to have a certain level of capabilities, be they physical or emotional capabilities to undertake a particular behavior. We need to have the opportunities available to us, the resources available to us, and we need to have the motivation. Um, and we need to look at motivation in terms of automatic motivation and then more long-term controlled motivation as well. Um, and those are key factors that actually influence um, someone's ability then to carry out a behavior. What I would, and so you beautifully summarize that <laughs> absolutely to the point. Um, another layer that I would bring in as well is um, from self-determination theory. Um, and self-determination theory is one of the most studied theories in psychology. There's over 40 years of research um, on it. And it's all about what does it take to create lasting change? And for self, so for someone to be self-determined, so actually they're self-motivated, they have that intrinsic level of motivated, they're doing it for themselves and they're more, Though time and time again, studies those are shown to be people that are able to stick at their goals best. They need to have certain basic needs that are nourished. And those basic needs are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So autonomy means that the person needs to feel like they have ownership over their behavior. They need to feel like they have control over the behavior. Competence means that they need to feel confident in their ability to execute the behavior and relatedness is actually, you know, they need to feel socially related to others, that they, they're not alone in their pursuit, that they're actually part of something bigger than themselves. And when each of these needs are nurtured, it's much more likely that someone will develop their intrinsic motivation. And it's much more likely than in time that they'll stick to this goal. And so if you want to think about your own habits themselves, you know, do you feel a certain level of ownership? Do you feel a certain level of control? Do you feel a certain level of accountability and responsibility in your habits? Do you feel competent? Do you feel confident? And how can you build that confidence? And, you know, we often talk about small changes because it's a beautiful way of actually building your confidence and your competence around a behavior. And do you feel related? Do you feel like there's others? Do you feel like you've a tribe? Do you feel like you've a community? Do you feel like you're feeling understood and heard when it comes to pursuing a particular behavior change? Be it a habit that you wish to develop in work, be it a healthy habit. It's, it's regardless of it, self-determination theory shows that when these needs are nurtured, we're much more likely to be successful at long-term change. And on the flip side, when these needs are thwarted, we're much less likely to be successful long-term change and so those are some of the key factors that actually can obscure someone um, and their ability to follow their long-term goals and i would say for anyone um just on this note while i'm thinking of it if they want to understand a little bit more about their habits if they want to understand what gets in the way um, and this made me think of a study that we did a few years ago was maybe think about becoming a habit detective and what I mean about that is become curious about what's driving those unhelpful habits. And one way to do that is just to do a temptation tracker for a week. And that will give you a huge amount of insight into, is it a particular time of day? Is it a particular person? Is it a particular situation that throws you off track? And there's four things you can track in your temptation tracker. You can track what the temptation is. So, you know, is it eating chocolate out of the fridge? Is it browsing news websites when you should be working? when you're most likely to give into temptation, so a particular time of day or context. Where are you most likely to give into temptation? Is it, you know, in the kitchen? Is it at work? Is it, you know, on your way home from work? Whatever it happens to be when it's when you're doing things with the kids, maybe when it's you're out in a restaurant. 
And why did you give in to that temptation? And that's the sticky part there. That's really, really interesting. Um, and you might not always be obvious about why, or it might be super obvious. It's that, you know, someone left a, a plate of M&Ms out in the counter. And so, you know, you, you were giving in to temptation or you walk past a bakery on your way home from work and the weight of the warm cinnamon buns, you know, who could resist that? You know, that is what the cue was for you or the trigger was for you to engage in temptation. But that exercise alone can be hugely insightful. And you don't need any particular option, any particular um anything bar a pen and a paper or your phone. And just anytime you feel like you're tempted over the week, ask yourself those four questions. What was the temptation? When was the temptation? Where was I and why? And if you can really dig into that why and even ask yourself, you know, am I hungry? Am I stressed? Am I tired? Am I bored? Am I frustrated? Am I angry? Or maybe it's just something that's in my physical environment. And count yourself lucky if it's one of those physical environment things because they're a lot easier to change. Those are the easy ones. Yeah, you just delete it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and develop a curiosity. Become this detective because actually that can really tell you um what these triggers are for you because for each person it is individual and while you know we know from studies that there are, are kind of four or five main things and stephanie you talked about them you know time and um emotional energy and everything else that's useful to know let's break it down to a personal individual factor let's look at what are those for you and just try that over a week try get some weekend days in try and get some week weekdays in and actually you'll discover some incredible patterns like in our study we found that people were most tempted around 3.30 and 8.30 um, in the day. And 3.30 is what I like to term the biscuit slump. Um, and for some people, it was because they didn't have a sustainable enough lunch. And um, for other people, it was because that's the height of stress in their day. For other people, it was boredom at that time. And that's the time you get the kids. That's the yeah, time you pick up the kids. Yeah, it's the time you pick up the kids and they come back and they have yeah. their snacks, you know, yeah. and you start eating their snacks from the cupboard. But what's wonderful is once you know these things, then you can start to think about, well, what can I do to actually engineer a more helpful habit into my life? If I know that that's a trigger or cue, what's another behavior that I could perform at that time? And that can be really, really interesting to play around with. And we talked about, you know, habits are on a loop. So you've got a cure or trigger, you've got your routine or your behavior, and that's in response for a particular reward. And be it helpful or unhelpful habits, they all serve a reward. And that's why I always say, you know, all habits serve a function. So let's think about, you know, brushing your teeth in the morning. The cue is to go into the bathroom. The behavior is brushing your teeth. The reward is positive dental hygiene or fresh breath. Um, you know, think about a behavior that often happens at work, you know, um, the cue is you get bored. Um, so you have the need to procrastinate. You put about your phone, you go on social media. That's the behavior or a news website. And the reward is you relieve that need to procrastinate. But the problem is the more you repeat that behavior, the more it becomes a habit. And so that loop continues. And so when we're thinking about those unhelpful habits, once we've tracked them and we know when they're happening and potentially why, we can start to reverse engineer them. If we understand the why, if we understand what's driving us in the first place. So for example, if it's stress, well, what else could we do at that time to relieve stress? Or what else could we do at other times during the day to crowd out that unhelpful habit? Because often, you know, we put so much effort into actually trying to fix a habit or break a habit completely. And actually the science shows that that's ineffective. That's not a great way of using your energy. You're better to crowd out those unhelpful habits 
with helpful habits. So often for many of us, stress tends to be the main driver of those bad habits or unhelpful habits. So what helpful habits can we develop around stress and how can we recognize our cues and our triggers better so actually we can reverse engineer those things so we can set up our environment so you know, we don't have those unhealthy snacks available at that time because we know that that's the time that we're most triggered or that we we can do something else in that circumstance that actually helps relieve that stress. I think that's so great. I was talking to um, Kelly Levesque. Uh, she's a specialist in, you know, blood sugar management. And she was talking about the, and she, it, what you just said sort of triggered a memory uh, of her on the show. And she said, Something to the effect of, you know, if you say no in the grocery store, let's say, uh, to the chips or the cookies or the crackers, like you only have to say no once versus if you bring them home, you know, and then the kids pull them out at 3.30, like you have to say no every single day that they come home, right? So which one's easier? It's like no one time or no every single day or no every single time you walk by the kitchen and know that the cookies are just, you know, just in the cupboard. Yeah, yeah, they kind of the sirens call. There, there's a really fun study. I'm just gonna um talk about one more study. You can probably up to your eyes in temptation resistance studies at this stage, but there's a really fun study that they did um in workplaces and receptionists. And they put um a jar of M&Ms, an open uh, open jar of M&Ms on on some of their desks, and then the other workplaces they put them six feet away. And those that had them six feet away ate over the period of time of the study, I think was like 300 calories less than those that were on their desks. And it was the proximity that actually, you know, and this is why we talk about friction. You want to have more friction. You want to move it as far away as possible. You want to leave it in the grocery store. You don't want to have to be walking past knowing that they're there. Um, and that's exactly what they found in this study, that those that had it far away, even though it was only six feet away made it much less likely that they'd engage in that temptation. So definitely, if you keep being sweets on your desk and you're trying to cut out your sh- cut down your sugar, you know, it's going to be extremely hard because you're relying on your willpower rather than your skill power to set your environment up for success. And you can do, um, you know, that's not to say that you can never have M&Ms. No. Like you can allow yourself and say, listen. Oh, enjoy. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm going to have M&Ms. I'm just not going to keep any in the house. So if I want M&Ms right now, I'm going to go to the corner store or the gas station or the, or the supermarket. And I'm going to get mm-hmm. myself a single serving size of the M&Ms. Right. But if you think about all of the, you know, the friction, as you said, right, like the barriers to entry versus just being in the cupboard where you're like, okay, I got to get in my car and drive. And then I got to go to the store and then I got to find a, you got to really serving. want those M&Ms. You got, you got to yeah. really want them, right. You got to really want them. And it's really a conscious decision-making. And that's yeah. what you're talking about. It's not a non-conscious thing. It's not like, oh, they're there. I'll just have them because they're here. I circumstantially just, ended up in this position and now they're here you're making a conscious decision to actually have them and that's that's important that we do that and it is important that we have things that are unhealthy this is not again going back to you know stephanie what you alluded to earlier about it's not about all or nothing actually in fact it's very important to have things that you think are off plan or maybe you know not exactly what you think is the healthiest because the importance is the bounce back it's the resilience it's what happens afterwards yeah that is so important uh, speak a little bit, if you if you can, around why it's important for this change to happen in uh, a positive mental state. Like I think I assumed before, kind of diving into some of the science for my clients, that you know, I think that people often, well, we'll say it this way, maybe people often I would notice, and myself included, uh, started habits because you know, we felt bad about ourselves in some way, right? Like doctors telling us that our our fasting glucose is or our lipids are not right, or we have to lose Mm -hmm. weight or, you know, so we often, I would 
think um, that most people start habits because there's something that they want to change about themselves. Um, and your you talk a lot about this idea that the positive emotion itself, like feeling good is the thing that actually wires in the habit. And that makes mm-hmm. sense from a neurological perspective. So I'll just kind of hold my comments, but I want I uh, I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about why change happens best through positive emotions rather than like publicly ridiculing yourself or, you know, being your own worst critic or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I just, yeah, I love, I absolutely love this piece. And I think this is actually one of my main drives to actually, you know, be in the career of behavioral change going right back to the first question is I, I feel like in a way and not to be evangelical about it, but I feel like it's important for me knowing the research to help people find joy in healthy habits and the thing is like you said you know change is hard you know making those small changes can be incredibly frustrating not seeing in results is incredibly frustrating being persistent is frustrating but change is harder if we're hard on ourselves about it and thoughts are habits too as well and you know if we develop this negative repetition in our brain it's only going to not serve us it's not going to help us get to our goals any faster um but it's so funny when people adopt new habits you know like think about anyone joining a gym you know they scan the gym floor and they look for like that maximally punishing scare master or the assault bike and they're like right I have to do that because that's the hardest thing to do that must be the most beneficial or you know January they go to the store and they're like right I'm gonna buy kale and you know I'm gonna do steamed broccoli and fish every night you know and after like a week they're just like oh god this is so bland and they feel like somehow their future self is gonna have the willpower to just you know, suddenly love, fall in love with having broccoli every night. And, you know, we, we commit to those goals for a couple of weeks, but it gets joyless and it gets hard and we disengage. And, 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 you know, there's an, there's another study involving M&Ms, which is, um, kind of one of the themes now of the studies I'm talking about today. They must be on my mind and I love everyone craving <laughs> M&Ms after this because I've mentioned them so many times. Um, but, um, there, there was two groups of, of women and they were getting, um, they were trying to develop uh, walking habits and they got one group to go and walk for exercise and they got another group to go and walk for fun. And they brought them back into the research lab and they got them to fill out a lot of psychometric questionnaires afterwards, as they always do in these psychology studies. Um, And what they found when they followed up three months later was those that they had told in the study to walk for exercise were walking about half as much as those that were walking for fun. And what they also found was when they were filling out those psychometric questionnaires, and this is what I love about psychology studies, there's always like a hidden um, incentive behind them. Um, What they had left an open uh, bowl of M&Ms beside the the questionnaires. And so when the women came back and they were filling out the questionnaires, they actually measured how many M&Ms they ate. And what they found was, yeah, you know, cheeky, right? (laughs) Really deceptive. I love it. So smart. But what they found was that those who were walking for exercise for benefits, you know, they were thinking about the health benefits just alone rather than fun or enjoyment. They ate twice as many M&Ms than those that were walking for fun. Wow. And well, yeah, I, I find that so fascinating because it was fascinating. Like, yeah. Doesn't it really resonate as well? Like, you know, because it's like 
they 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 were do they they were the ones that felt more deprived you know they felt like they created a regime and i always find this you know it's always a tr trigger for me as well it's always a click for me when someone says my exercise regime rather than their routine or what they do for exercise and um I think, you know, Mary Poppins put it best. She says, you know, in every task that must be done, there's an element of fun. Oh, yeah. Snap, you find the fun, the job's a game. And, you know, anyone who's got kids will understand that, like, and if we want to get kids to engage in exercise, we bring them to playground because it's fun. You know, if we want them to eat vegetables, we make them into a shape of a dinosaur because that's fun. But yet as adults, we don't focus on this fun. We focus far too much on, you know, what needs to be grueling, what needs to be hard, because if it's not tough, it's not worthwhile. But actually, that's not effective. And actually, what they found in studies time and time again is those that choose foods they enjoy, those that foods choose healthy activities that they enjoy, they're the ones that stick to it long term, because ultimately, if you can find the joy, the rest becomes easy for you. And that's a huge unlock in terms of actually activating those positive emotions in your brain and actually helping your brain learn, because dopamine is a learning hormone in your brain, as you will well know, Stephanie. And, um, you know, it's the pat on the back you get for doing a good job. If you're constantly telling yourself this isn't enough. Or I'm not trying hard enough. Or I did, you know, a 30 minute hit session. I could have done, you know, a four. Well, let's not talk about hit sessions. It's probably not a hit anymore for doing 44, 40 minutes. But, you know, I did a 30 minute run. I should have done a 40 minute run. Or you're saying, oh, well, I only meditated for 15 minutes and I, I, I only did this and this was not enough. It's how we often talk to ourselves. That's not telling our brain this is something good to do. It's not telling our brain I want to do it again and again and again. Whereas on the flip side, if we do things we enjoy, it releases positive emotions. It it gives us that dopamine response. It tells our brain, hey, let's do this again and again and again. And so I always say to people when they're starting out in their healthy habit journey, can you create a joy list? Can you write down those activities that you enjoy? Or if you're already on your habit journey, ask yourself, well, how can I layer joy into this habit? So say you go walking every day, you know, how can you make it more fun? How can you make it more engaging? Can you listen to podcasts that you love? Can you listen to audiobooks? Maybe there's definitely when it comes to your batch cooking, is that when you watch that Netflix documentary or that um, trashy TV show that you love? You know, do you only do that, you know, when you're batch cooking? And that's a, a technique called temptation bundling. And it's actually doing something really fun at the time to make it more engaging for you to actually engage in that task. And then there's a third part of joy that's really important as well. And that comes back to what we talked about, resisting temptation to not do it. Um, and that's about thinking about the end state after you carry out a helpful behavior or a healthy behavior. So for example, you know, if you're weighing up the pros and cons of going on a run when it's cold, if you start to tell yourself about, oh yeah, well, what, how do I feel when I finished? What are those feelings of, you know, accomplishment, achievement, clarity when I finish a workout, you know, if you can tune into those, it makes it much more likely that, you know, you'll strap on your trainers, you'll get your gym kit going and you'll get out that door. But so often we think of the negative, we think of all the things we're deprived of, we think about how hard it is rather than actually, you know, all the positive feelings that we get from engaging in a particular behavior. So I've said a lot there, but what I'll summarize and say is, you know, create a joy list and focus on those behaviors or those particular elements of the behaviors that bring you joy, because that makes it much more likely that you'll engage and you'll continue to engage. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the secret sauce right there. That's so juicy. It's like the best program you could ever, the best diet you could ever follow is the one that you enjoy eating. You know, yeah. it's like the best 
movement uh, program that you could ever design is the one that you enjoy doing. Like if you love to salsa dance, like you should be salsa dancing. Like that should be part of your, you know, uh, that should be part of your program that should be integrated into that, into that joyful, uh, you know, into that, it, it, like that should be on your joy list. Mm-hmm. And there should be a way for you to, as you said, like temptate, like bundle all the things together, like all of the good habits together. Mm-hmm. That's really like hard doesn't mean helpful, you know, and we think, oh yeah, if, I'm not, yeah. if it's not hard, it's not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I'm not punishing myself or beating myself with a big stick, then why should I bother? Yeah. I mean, I I have found this conversation to be so enlightening. Um, I hope that this is, I know, I don't even hope, I know that this is going to be so useful for my community who is probably right now embarking in some kind of um, you know, some kind of uh, habit forming something that they're trying to achieve for 23, which um, I think with this nuance is going to be so helpful, right? So if you fall off, as you said, it's like, that's actually a good thing. It's like, mm. can you get back up, right? Are you going to beat yourself up about it? But can you, can we find positive ways to wire in the habit? Um, all the things we've talked about uh, had that just have been phenomenal thank you so much for your time i've really really enjoyed this conversation thank you stephanie god without your questions like they were just absolutely epic you can tell that you're you're you've looked into this and you're self-reflective and you've you've learned so much so you've added so much to this i really enjoyed today thank you all right all right i hope you enjoyed today's episode and i must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here this podcast better with dr stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine chiropractic or any other primary healthcare providers advice treatment or care In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 